0: Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to uh, share once again at the Battle Creek Church. I ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to lead, to guide, to give me words, Lord, to share the meaning and the purpose of, um, of your truth, and to also do that with dignity towards other people as well as respect and mostly love. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so LGBT in the church. So Ron Woolsey and I, we were actually in... The Netherlands, and it's interesting. I didn't know that Holland and the Netherlands were the same thing. Did you know that? I know, right? Who knew? So anyway, we were coming up out of the parking garage, and we were with this really young couple, and as we were coming up out of the parking garage, we saw that on the Protestant church, they had the gay pride flags, and we were like, whoa. Now, I don't know if you know this, but in Europe, whenever they would build a new city, they would always build the church, which was the largest structure in the center of the town first. And then what they would do is they would build the city around it. So when you see something on the Protestant church in the center of town, it's a big deal. And so it was surprising for us to see that. Now, um, that isn't the only uh, city or the only country that is celebrating gay pride now. We have a lot of things that I've been seeing as we've been traveling around the world. This is actually in Sweden, in Stockholm. And Ellen White talks about the miasma of the city. And I was there a year and a half ago. And as I was walking around in Stockholm, they were celebrating gay pride. And we saw uh, the rainbow even on the side of the police cars. And it's so celebrated. People have them in their windows. And Sweden has been celebrating that for over 20 years. So for a long time. And the people are very, very much used to it. They even have a rainbow in the center of the subway system as you're coming in. You can see the street lights even have gay couples on them. This is what's happening not just in Sweden, but also around the world. I take you to South America. I was in uh, the country of Colombia in the capital city, and they have their very first gay lesbian governor, and she was voted in and Colombia is considered a very conservative church or a very conservative country and for them to have an openly gay lesbian governor is a very huge thing, but this is something that's going on around the world Even in Peru, we were in Peru, and even though gay marriage still was not legalized when we were there a few years ago, it might be now. Um, But again, Peru is considered a very conservative country as well. So it comes to identity, and identity is everything. And where did this whole LGBT, these letters, uh, come from? As a matter of fact, now it's LGBTQIA. Did you know that? And do you know what the letters stand for? I know it's tough to keep up with let me explain them to you if I could since identity is everything the L is for lesbian G is for gay B for bisexual T for transgender Q for questioning or queer and then the I is for intersex and the A is for asexual recently our president um, got in trouble Ted Wilson got in trouble because he said that we do not condone LGBTQIA but that's not necessarily accurate. And I I would think that he doesn't really understand intersex or asexual because those don't go against the Bible. And they're definitely issues. But when you lump in all of those together, it's important to know the differences because somebody that is intersex is somebody that is born with ambiguous genitalia or both sexes. Now we know that God created two perfect people and that was Adam and Eve and then sin entered into our world. And so somebody intersex is not living against Biblical sexuality, it's something that is a birth defect and that is an issue all its own And so I want to help you to compartmentalize that we want to put the intersex over here They deserve a lot of compassion and and their challenges are, are very large and a lot of times it takes um, Gender studies and uh, studying the chromosomes to know how to assist them to be the gender that they uh, were intended to be and and that is a separate issue all on its own. That has nothing to do with transgenderism. Does that make sense? Somebody that is transgendered is somebody that is completely male or completely female, and they have rejected their biology because they're going according to what's in their mind about how they feel about themselves rather than their biology. But they are completely male or completely female. Does that help to make the difference? Do you understand better the differences between the two? And then somebody asexual is somebody that's not attracted to anyone, males or females, sexually. And so they don't have a sexual drive. And so they're not necessarily in a relationship or they might be in a uh, celibate relationship with somebody. So again, that doesn't go against pr- Christian principles. So the, the I and the A we can just put over here. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the LGB and the T, okay? Alright, I hope that helped. So where did all these letters come from and how did it start? You can credit that to a man by the name of Alfred Kinsey. Anyone heard of Alfred Kinsey? Alfred Kinsey was a homosexual pedophile masochist scientist and this gentleman what he did is he did a lot of studies in the 30s and the 40s. He was funded by the Rockefeller Institute to basically study human sexuality and in his studies he definitely had an agenda he wanted to lower the consensual age of sex. He also wanted to basically promote uh, some of his own attractions. Did you know that um, Alistair Crowley was the mentor to uh, Alfred Kinsey? So that should be disturbing even in itself. So this is the man that the United States funded to be able to do this um, human sexuality research, and he released a book in 1950, and it was called Male Sexuality: uh, Understanding Male Sexuality." And then, a few years later, he came out with a book about female sexuality. In his research, he said that a six-month-old baby girl had 22 orgasms in a 24-hour period of time. He used digital and oral stimulation. And he said that uh, an orgasm consisted of vomiting, screaming, and passing out. And this is the man that has given us our sex education today. This is the man that is celebrated around the world. There was a Hollywood movie that came out a few years ago uh, about Alfred Kinsey and they made him a hero, this glorious hero. But this man actually paid fathers to molest their daughters and to record the data. And there's uh, uh, YouTube uh, videos that you can watch where it actually exposes Alfred Kinsey and his research by a woman by the name of Judy Reisman. Judy Reisman actually won a court case in Europe uh, against Alfred Kinsey and his research. And of course, the United States would never support that because Alfred Kinsey has such a prominent name today. But Alfred Kinsey actually died from his own inflictions of his sexual um, behaviors. So that's a little bit of the history because before Alfred Kinsey, nobody identified as these letters or about their sexual preferences or attractions. So I think it's important to know because many of us are like, well, wait, when did this happen and where did this start? Because before the 1940s, it was never even an issue. So religion today doesn't have a prayer. When it comes to equality, LGBT activists and their judicial allies have made sure that sexual behavior trumps religious liberty every time. It's an overwhelming global issue. I was talking with a friend of mine, uh, he was a client, and being a hairdresser, my salon was in my home, and I remember uh, Bill came in, and he's a good Catholic father of four, and we were having a discussion, we always have these lively discussions, and I started to talk to him about Revelation and, you know, the rumors of war and earthquakes and pestilence, you know, this kind of stuff. And he said, Mike, come on, He goes, you know, we've been having all of that stuff for, you know, hundreds of years. Nothing's new there. He said, tell me one thing that's different today that would be a sign that the end of the world is coming. And I thought about it for a minute and I was so surprised that this guy really knew his Bible. And as I thought about it for a moment, I I was praying in the back of my mind, Lord, how would I answer this? And then, bing, it came into my mind. And I said to my friend Bill, I said, well, you know, Bill, I said it's never been a worldwide thing for homosexual acceptance and gay marriage. And now it's a worldwide thing. And he was stumped and he said, you're the first person to answer that question with something that I can really sink my teeth into. And so this is an overwhelming global issue. Never in the history of the world Has there ever been LGBT acceptance in marriage around the world? So when I came into the church 40 years ago, I'm sorry, 20 years ago, (laughs) I'm almost that old, but not quite. So 20 years ago, when I came into the church, there were these two positions in the church. Now, 40 years ago, when I left the church, the only position that I heard was the one that you see on the left. And that was basically that God hates gays and that we're going to burn in hell, that there's no hope for us. And so now what I see as we started this ministry 12 years ago, now we have this, um, this kind of new situation or new stance that, yes, gays can't change, just like gays couldn't change before and God hated them. Now gays still can't change, but God loves them. Isn't that interesting that the issue is still the same, that gays couldn't change before and they were hated, and now gays still can't change, and because they can't change, now God loves them. Do you see what the common denominator is in both of these positions? Is the fact that gays can't change. But did anybody bother to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11? It says, such were some of you. But you've been washed and you've been sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. So right there, we have proof, biblical proof, according to Christianity, that gays can change. And if you look at verses 9 and 10, it's not just the gays that can change. It's also the fornicators, the liars, the murderers, the adulterers, right? Even the gossips in our church, they can change. So all of them are lumped together. These are all of the abominations. But I credit the Christian culture for basically promoting LGBT acceptance in marriage. Now that might be a little bit confusing for you. Let me explain. So 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever, when when the Christian population said that God hated gay people and that they were more repubate than anybody else, what they did is they made homosexuality exclusive. What they did is they pulled homosexuals out of that group of people, and they put them up here, and they go, at least I'm not like them. So I don't know if that was to excuse their own personal sins, like, I guess if we can hate a group even more, that makes my sin okay. I don't understand where that comes from. But because of that exclusivity, that was the reason why I and many other people walked out of the Christian church, because we didn't feel that there was any hope for us. I didn't hear my my pastor overtly say that gays were going to go to hell, but I did hear my pastor say things when he didn't know the company of which he was keeping. He would say things, well, at least I'm not like them, you know? And those little comments you hear. And if somebody's struggling with same-sex attraction and we're covering, desperately trying to hide this stuff or whatever, we can't help but hear those little comments that you make when you judge people and ostracize them and make them exclusive to the body of Christ. And so I heard those uh, words. As a matter of fact, this might be interesting to you. Um, When I left the, the Christian church, the Adventist church, I remember I went out into the gay culture. It was one Friday night. It was at the gay bar. And of course, for a while, I heard the conviction of the Holy Spirit that was convicting me that the last place I needed to be in a Friday night was in a gay bar, but there I was. And as I'm sitting at this gay bar, the gentleman next to me had his drink. And then this guy comes up to the bar and he orders his drink. The bartender gives him the drink. And then all of a sudden, the guy getting the drink says, hey, Happy Sabbath. And I jerked my head and I go, what? And then the guy to the right of me, he says, oh yeah, happy Sabbath. And of course, I chimed in too. And did you know that on that Friday night, there were four ex-Adventists there celebrating the Sabbath in a gay bar on a Friday night? Why? Because we'd been ostracized? Because we'd been kicked out of the church? Or maybe some of us were just ignored out of the church? And so how sad that the only place that we could celebrate the Sabbath was actually in a gay bar. And I say that because the Adventist church for many years, maybe you didn't know how to address it. Maybe we didn't know how to talk about it. But even our silence was a judgment in itself because we were desperate for resources. We were desperate for understanding about why I was struggling with this thing because nobody was willing to talk about this very difficult topic. There were many of us that left the church and ended up in the gay culture. So now I believe that we don't have an excuse anymore. Uh, and you probably understand too. We, we don't have the, the luxury of ignoring this topic anymore. It's in our face. It's not only in our face, it's in our schools, it's in our churches, it's in our society, and it's on the law books. And so part of me is grateful that we have this opportunity and coming out ministries is not necessarily that exclusive of a ministry or that great. We're just normal people with the story. But I believe that because of the times in which we're living in, that people like you that come out on a Sabbath afternoon to hear these presentations, you want to know more. Am I right? Raise your hand if you know somebody that's gay that you love. Is there someone that you love that's gay? All right. So even if we didn't have that in our, in our families or in our friendships, we should still be here as concerned Christians wanting to know how to minister to a people that have been ostracized for many years that now tend to have more rights than we do. And we know that by studying the prophecy that we have to get ready. We have to prepare ourselves because things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse. So how is it that we can be redemptive in our approach and still represent the love of Christ and the truth to combine? Isn't that it? Because the church has already a very bad reputation. right so we have a group of people now that uh, represent themselves as Seventh-day Adventists and this is interesting and I don't really say this a whole lot but did you know that every denomination that does not support same-sex marriage or same-sex membership did you know that every one of those religions has a group of people that are trying to break down the door into their religion and we spoke to the uh, Mennonites a couple of years ago and they have a group called the pink minnows and the pink minnows are just like the, uh, the SEA kinship for their religion, trying to promote and make homosexuality acceptable. So I remember, it wasn't long after I was an Adventist Christian, and I was sitting down with a friend of mine that had also left the homosexual life. We were studying together, and I said, Eureka, look, I found kinship. And my friend, he was very patient with me, and he said, well, look at how they explain the verses on homosexuality. That doesn't even make sense. I said, I don't care. I go, tell me lies. Just tell me a lie. Just tell me that I can have my boyfriend and I can have Jesus. And my friend was very patient with me, and I'm sure that the Holy Spirit was in the room. And as he was very patient with me and tried to explain those verses, eventually I had to admit that he was right. That the way they explained the verses on homosexuality, it makes sense. It doesn't hold water. And I had to make a very difficult decision. And I would like to maybe suggest to anyone in the audience that's heterosexual and married, what if God told you that your heterosexual marriage was wrong? What if your attractions to the opposite sex was wrong? Would that be difficult for you to end your marriage? Maybe you have kids together. Would that be difficult for you to divide up the house? Who's going to keep the house? Who's going to buy it from the other? Who's going to uh, divide up the 401k and the house payments and the car payments? That is what every person that is homosexual that's in a relationship has to deal with when they come into church culture and they accept the biblical understanding of what God is asking. It's not a little thing. It's a huge thing. And do you have the patience? Do you have the ability to be patient with them and love them even if they're not ready to give up their their house payment or their lover or their situation? Those are the questions that we really have to ask. But there are groups of people that are pushing on the doors of Christianity and those that hold on to the biblical truths of what the Bible says about identity and sexuality. And for us, it happens to be SDA kinship. Now, SEA Kinship has the right to use those letters, SEA, because they weren't copyrighted. And so they came up with the name. Did you know that the General Conference sued them over using the name SEA? And they lost. The Seventh-day Adventist Church lost. And so SEA Kinship has the right to use those letters, even though they are not acknowledged, nor are they a part of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. Did anyone not know that? I didn't know that for a long time. Okay. So I wanted to explain that. Um, There was something more I wanted to say about that. Okay, maybe it'll come to me later. So there are two institutions that were established at creation. One, of course, was the Sabbath. The other one was marriage. And so we know now that marriage is under attack. And for those of you who've been reading Great Controversy for many years, or maybe a few years, you know that eventually the Sabbath is going to be under attack. Marriage is also um, one of the institutions that was established before there was sin, as well as the Sabbath. And so those are the things that are going to be under attack. And so what if God were looking at our church to see how we're handling uh, marriage when it's under attack to know how we're going to handle Sabbath when it's under attack? And you know what? We've seen it all. We've seen many sides of the controversy that's within the church. We've seen the haters. We've seen the people out there that promote hate and indifference and and, uh, judgmental attitudes towards the homosexual community. And because we were part of that community, we have a very special interest in making sure that the church is compassionate to people like us. And while I received a lot of um, judgment from my church, as a matter of fact, um, I don't think I mentioned it last night. Um, When I went to um, my church, they were very open and accepting and very loving. It It was a Spanish Caribbean black church that I was baptized in. And you know what? They loved me. And I thought, well, this must be the Adventist faith. So when I moved to Tennessee, it was another big church. It was a hospital church there. But I found that as I shared my story, I got quite a different reaction. As a matter of fact, I remember that this doctor invited me pretty quickly to his house for a Sabbath meal. There were 12 people around the table, all of the highly esteemed people in Tennessee. And this doctor used that as an opportunity to let me know that I needed to keep my mouth shut. And everybody knows that that's a choice and you chose that. And those are the consequences of your choice. Hmm. As a matter of fact, I asked my pastor for a men's ministry because I needed to know how to interact with men in a non-sexual way that would be healing for me. And my, and my pastor said, oh, we'll make you the head of it. And I go, no, 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 I need that ministry. I can't be the head of a ministry that I need. And he goes, oh, I guess I understand. He said, well, pitch your idea to the board. I had a speaker that was willing to come. He had a uh, product like movies and books that you know, we could look at. And so I brought them to the board meeting that night. There were about 20 members on the board one of the highly esteemed doctors uh, was there in that board meeting and he picked up one of the books and he threw it down on the table and he looked at me and he pointed at me and he said I don't want to be running around in the woods like a bunch of gay men and that was the best that my church could give me pastor never said a word the head elder never said a word but I was used to it so I received that that comment and I drove home that night and I said to God I hate your church and I hate your people and the Lord said so why do you go I said, well, I go because that's where the truth is. And he said, so what do you do when you go? And I said, well, I go to worship you. Isn't that what you ask? And he said, he said, yeah, continue to do that and learn to forgive them because they're my people too. God didn't give me a pink slip and tell me that I could just go to another church or go act out sexually. He said, stay there and learn the process of forgiveness. It'll be very healing for you. And I'm ashamed to say it took me three years To forgive them and i sat in the third row from the front all by myself for three more years they took me away from all of my activities as a greeter as a sabbath school teacher because i guess i was questionable and so you know what that was my life it took three years for me to forgive them i was doing bible studies with this couple uh, these two girls they were sisters and uh they liked the little black church in our community better and i said to the lord i said lord do i drop them off at the black church and then come back to mine and he said no you've done your job it's time to go I went to the head elder of this little black church, and he was an ex-drug addict, and and basically the church was just him and his family. There were like 8 to 12 members. And I said to him, I said, do you have any room in your church for an ex-homosexual, ex-sex addict? And he said, well, have a seat with everybody else, and can you preach every now and then because we don't have a regular preacher? And his words to me were so much different than what I'd experienced before. And as I came into that church, I found more acceptance. I found that I was just one of many instead of someone that was ostracized, that needed to be looked after and watched after to make sure that I was okay. And I experienced a whole lot of healing in that church. And that should be one of your questions. Maybe you should write that down. What was some of the healing that you experienced at your little church? I'd love to share that with you. And so these are the different, uh, uh, different experiences that I've had in the church. Ron has many as well, and so you might want to ask him uh, some of his stories. But I think it helps to edify the church, to understand how we receive or how people receive some of the things that you say, even if it's in ignorance or innocence. So biology. We were asked to uh, participate in a discussion in Germany, northern Germany. Now, it's interesting. In southern Germany, they're very conservative. And in northern Germany, they're very liberal. So the liberal church had already decided that LGBT acceptance is fine. Bring it on. So they wanted to have a balanced discussion. So they invited coming out ministries to be the opposing argument, if you would. And so there we were. We were in this church. And it was Sabbath before the conference on Sunday. And there was this couple. It was a husband and wife. They were both doctors. And uh, we were having a discussion and the the woman doctor, she said, I don't even know why we're having this discussion tomorrow, this conference. I don't even think it's necessary. And I go, oh, yeah, I'm kind of with you on that. You know, thinking that biblically, the Bible is very clear about homosexuality and, and homosexual practice. And she said, well, everybody knows that you can love who you want to love. And it's like, what's the big deal? And I looked at her and I go, really? And she goes, absolutely. And I said, well, you're a doctor, aren't you? And she said, yes. And I said, well, I'm a hairdresser. But even as a hairdresser, I understand biology, and I use this as an illustration to kind of explain my point and God's design, and in Genesis chapter 1, it was very clear that, that God only made two kinds, male and female, and when you look at them biologically, they fit together very nicely, and God made it very clear that their job was to, to procreate and to multiply and, and replenish the earth. And here I'm talking to a person with a medical degree and she doesn't even understand the simple understanding of the biology of this. This is the confusion and deception that so many people have bought into. And I use this as an illustration and it's not just homosexuality that destroys the image of God because I think that's what really is under question here. If the devil is behind any of this, you know that the devil wants to destroy the image of God that was created in two people, a male and a female. Now the beautiful thing about um, the male and the female system is that they come together and they create a life. When a husband and a wife have sex, it creates life. Isn't that a beautiful thing? If you're a parent, raise your hand. When you looked into your child's face and you said, wow, she's got my nose. Look, he's got my chin. You got to experience the creative power of what God has given as a gift to man. And so we know that Satan was created higher than the humans, right? We know that according to Ezekiel that the devil wants to be like God and so he wants to sit in the sides of the north and he wants to be like God. So imagine how angry he was when God bypassed the angels and gave the gift of creation to man. We know that the devil came to steal, to kill, and to destroy and nothing destroys the image of God that was created in the relationship between one man and one woman sexually together than sexual sin. Not even, it's not even limited to homosexuality. Because two women together can't produce life. Two men together can't produce life. Transgender person destroys their, their genitals to the point where they can't reproduce anything. But it's not limited to that because when you look at other sexual sins, masturbation, pornography, fornication, multiple partners, it destroys the image of God because he's exclusive to us. He's an intimate God that has no other lovers. And so sexual sin, period, destroys the image of God, and that is the devil's throwdown on this topic. How can I destroy the image of God and destroy man's ability to relate to his creator? It's much deeper than just LGBT. Does that make sense? So this is a couple. Now that we have uh, gay marriage, it was approved in 2015 by President um, Obama, And now we have all of these fringe groups coming forward saying, well, if gays were born that way and they can marry, well, then we want the right to marry too. So now we have polyamorous couples. This is an example of, of one husband and two wives. And they have their children together. And they represent themselves as very normal. Now we have HBO has programs about polyamorous couples, all in a way to promote this ideology to your children and to the future generations as normal and acceptable. But they're now coming forward saying that they should have the right to marry, that they are not defined by the constructs of biblical sexuality, and that they should be granted the same benefit. I remember when I would march in the gay pride parades that I would actually, oops, went too far that I would actually see this fringe group marching in the back, and you know what? They didn't take a lot of attention, and they were always at the end of the parade, but they were called Nambla. Does anyone know what Nambla is? Nambla is man-boy-love. And basically, this was a group of people that have now come forward and they said, well, if you'll grant gay marriage, then you should be able to lower the consensual age of sexual relationships to a uh, consensual younger boy that wants to marry an adult man. They're saying that they were born that way also. So you start to see all of these fringe groups coming in. Pedophilia is one of the things that, um, that a lot of people that are pro-LGBT acceptance in the church, that they really, um, they really frown on the idea that if you're gay, you're automatically a pedophile. And that's something that's been in the church for a long time. And that's not true. Just because somebody is gay does not make them a pedophile. The, the rates of homosexual pedophiles versus heterosexual pedophiles is the same. So heterosexuals have just as much right to the title as the gays do. But it is true that when you lower the consensual age of sex, Alfred Kinsey's research said that even babies are sexual. And so the idea is that we are restricting young people from being able to exercise their sexual freedom. And therefore, we should lower the consensual age of sex. Does that make sense? Do you see how crazy this is getting? And so I want to describe how crazy it is so that you have an idea of what's coming. But then I want to talk about the redemptive part as well. So, reparative therapy, what are we? Reparative therapy, that's what we've been accused of. Coming out ministries has been thrown into that camp by the uh, pro-gay movement done by uh, kinship, SDA kinship. We've been protested in Pasadena. We've been uh, kicked out of England. You know, uh, we were kicked out of uh, Australia. We weren't permitted to speak there as well because even the Seventh-day Adventist churches in some of those countries are so pro-LGBT that they see our mission as destroying young people's minds and telling um, them things that would cause them to commit suicide. What is reparative therapy? Let me be clear on this. Reparative therapy is a, a psychological treatment. It's called behavior modification, and it basically takes gay people and helps them to perform heterosexually and so that's not our ministry that is a behavior modification that anyone can can uh, can subscribe to in therapies with a psychologist psychiatrist whatever in different therapies but that's not what coming out ministries is coming out ministries isn't here to make gay people straight that's not our job our job is to connect people in a divine relationship with their creator and redeemer to be restored by the power of jesus Christ. Christ not to behave a certain way, but to reconnect us back to the power of Jesus. And so they're two different things. So be very clear that when somebody wants to put you in the camp of conversion therapy or or reparative therapy, let them know, no, no, that's not my goal. My goal is to connect you to your Savior. And it was the Holy Spirit that drove us. It was the Holy Spirit that drew us into a relationship with him where we receive power to overcome the things that were natural to us and the things that we had behaved in for many years. Does that make sense? Do you see the difference? So we're not talking about behavior modification, what the world can offer. We're talking about a divine intervention from our Redeemer and our Savior. I think that's worthy of an amen, don't you? Thank you, thank you. So gay Christian, now we have this terminology that's being used even by our seminary. And the seminary came out with a statement basically allowing this terminology. But let's just unpack that for a little bit. As a matter of fact, Ron, what's the name of your paper that you have on uh, gay Christian? Prefix Christian? Prefix Christian. What's in a prefix? Right? A prefix is something that describes, that is, the primary identity of this term. Right? So if you're a gay Christian, then that means that you're gay first, and then you're a Christian. Do you see a problem with that, folks? Because what we've done now is we've taken a sinful temptation. It's just one of many. And then what we did is we attach it to our identity in Christ. And what does Jesus say? In Christ, I'm a what? I'm a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, everything becomes new. So when I became a Christian, when Ron and I were baptized, God didn't wipe away our history and our memory. It's all intact. All of those memories and those thoughts and those feelings, they're still there. And we live with those on a daily basis. But he says, now you're in Christ. Now you're in me. You're no longer gay. You're no longer a liar. You're no longer a thief. You're no longer an adulterer. You're no longer addicted to porn. Even though those thoughts and those feelings may still come, I don't identify by my history. I identify in Christ alone. So do you see a problem with this terminology? So if I can identify as a gay Christian because of my thoughts and my feelings that the devil still throws at me at a rapid rate, because as Ron says, while he was baptized, the devil was not. And the devil has the right to throw my slime at me at a constant basis until the very day that Jesus comes to take me home or that I die. And if Jesus was tempted into the final moments of his life, what makes me think that I would be exempt from being tempted by the devil? Can I get a witness? Anyone? When you came up out of that watery grave... Did God wipe away your history and your memory? No. So doesn't it make sense that just because I have those thoughts and those feelings, it doesn't mean that that's my identity. And so Jesus says, leave all of those things and follow me. My direction now is to follow him and to be like him, not like my past. And so any pastor, any any, uh, clergy that would recommend that I identify in my past, in my identity in Christ, they're cheating me out of something very grand and glorious. So now uh, in 2 Peter 3.17, this verse says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing that you know these things before, beware lest you also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Be very clear on what the issue is and be very clear on what God's plan is for each one of us. Because if the church falls on this point, then we have, we're losing people. We're not saving them. You can love someone all the way into a lost situation. Doesn't that make sense? And while homosexuality is still called sin, now it's very popular and now it's in. And so the church is making a lot of concessions for a group of people that isn't designed to help them. If anything, it just keeps them complacent and still in their lost, um, lost case. So I want to share with you um, this, this Proverbs. It says 23 verse seven, it says, for as he thinketh in his heart that so he is. If that's what I hear, if that's what I keep telling myself that I'm gay, then how can I ever go into the relationship that God would want? Now, Ron's been married for well over 20 years, almost, has it 30 years yet? 29. All right, 29. 29 years. Do you think his wife would appreciate the fact that he would call himself a gay Christian? Do you think his kids would appreciate that? So again, what you think in your heart, that's what you are. You can't leave Something that you continued to play with, right? So I, ha- I have this analogy for you. I moved to the country uh, 16 years ago, and my screen door didn't shut all the way. It would gap like about an inch, about this far, right? And I remember that I-, I came up for lunch one day, and I looked and I saw the skin of a snake between two of my pieces of furniture, about this long. And so if my door is open just an inch, if I allow that terminology for gay Christian, if I just open that door and I allow that terminology gay Christian, How much of the snake can get in through that inch? The whole snake, right? And so we have to be very careful. We don't want to lack compassion in our our way of reaching different communities or things that are outside of biblical understanding. But we have to be very clear that the borders are strong so that we're not letting the whole snake in when we make concessions for different behaviors. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in the flesh, right? The things that I do in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me first. There you go. He loved me first and then gave his life for me so that I could live differently, so that I could live beyond that. So it's not an unloving thing to say that God wants you to walk away from that sexuality. Take a look at this picture, and I didn't get it for a long time. What's wrong with this picture? As long as you're not a pastor. Anyone but a pastor can answer that. Anyone? Just shout it out. Say it louder, please. That's it, exactly. You know, now it evaded me for a long time. I, I thought, well, isn't that really generous that Jesus wants to give us the, the robe of righteousness? And this poor man, he needs it, right? We know he needs it. But Jesus is covering over his filthy garment and he's going to put this beautiful robe of righteousness over this filthy garment. So what is between this man's flesh and his robe of righteousness? His sin. Isn't that right? Because Jesus requires in Revelation 3.18, he says, buy of me gold tried in the fire. He said, and take this raiment so that you can cover your nakedness. So when God puts on the robe of righteousness, he's covering our nakedness. There's nothing on. That means I have to take off all of my old identities, all of the things that defined me before, the things that come natural to me because sin is what comes natural. I was conceived in sin, right? We were all born in iniquity. And so Jesus says, you gotta take off that old robe, that old dirty, nasty robe to receive the robe of righteousness. Do I want anything between my skin and Christ's righteousness? Absolutely not. Anyone been married? Ladies, have you been married? Any, any ladies married? All right. When you bought your wedding dress, did you pay a lot of money for that? No. Nope? Okay. But it was it white. <laughs> All right. And so when you bought that beautiful dress, did you buy some new shoes to go with it? Right. Did you have your hair done on that special day? Absolutely. You wanted everything to be fresh, right? You wanted everything to be new. So ladies, would you take an old pair of bra and underpants and would you put on these nasty things on this beautiful day that you're going to put on this beautiful, expensive dress? You want new underwear too, don't you? You want anything to be old on that day. And so maybe it's a a simplified um, analogy, but when Jesus puts on the robe of righteousness, I don't want anything between me and my Savior. Do you see the difference there? So again, this is a a deception of the fact that I have to take off everything that defined me to be able to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ because that's now my direction, that's now my aim, that's my goal to be like him. I want to share with you um, this video. Uh, do we have sound? We'll find out, right? All right, I want to share with you this video clip, and it's a, a young girl, and she talks about her life as a lesbian, but she says some really profound things that I think will really touch your heart and help to uh, give you even more understanding of, of what a person has to go through when they make Christ their all.
1: I was 15 and I started dating a girl that lived down the street from me. It was my first time ever dating someone and being official. I was pretty pumped. I got a hickey. My dad saw it and was livid. I love her. It's a girl and I'm gonna be with her and this is how it is. Yeah, it went terribly. I guess she told some people and so they came to me and asked me, are you and her gay together? I can either cower away or I can own it, so I'm going to own it. I said, yeah, what about it? Love is not necessarily between a man and a woman. The problem was backwards thinking. If you were truly a Christian, you were on my side. And if not, you were legalistic and you needed to reread what God was really about. Judge not. God being loved meant God was nice and God was chill with what you were cool with. By 18 and 19 and 20, I was super wild and in serial relationships with women. When I got to nursing school, I met the girl that I ended up being engaged to. I kind of slowed down a little bit for her because she had two kids. And then at 22, I got invited to a Bible study. I expected them to bring up my lifestyle really early and then would use that as justification for not coming back. So I agreed to go. Different women in the circle were talking about different experiences they had. I have nothing like that, and it bugged me. I could not stop thinking, what if all of it's true? Are you sure this is who you are? I couldn't stop questioning. Um, I need to feel okay, because I don't feel okay anymore. I googled verses on homosexuality. Those who practice homosexuality, which was me, and also drunkards and a a bunch of other things that I would have been. I realized that I was in the will not enter the kingdom of God lineup, and it scared me really, really bad. And then I read verse 11, and it says, and such were some of you but you are washed you are sanctified you are justified i realized that there are people in the same place and they were saved and they were changed and that that god could do that for me too and that i needed that i could hold on to my sin and reject god or i could turn to him all the debt that i'd racked up living like i lived didn't have to be mine if I could trust him. So that was it. I knew what I wasn't going to do because it was right there. It was black and white. I'd twisted those scriptures before, I'd argued them down. I'd said, Judge not to them like that mattered. And then that day, it was like my eyes were really opened. I was amazed at the grace he'd shown me. People say to me all the time, I was born this way. I say, okay, yeah, me too. You're not born with right affections. That's why Jesus had to come. You feeling a desire for sin just proves you need grace like me. It's not gay to straight. It's lost to saved. God calls us not to heterosexuality, but to holiness. Even though the world would paint a a totally different story about what sexuality is and isn't, God's word is clear and he can save and he does and he will.
0: Mm. Isn't that awesome? God's word is clear and he can save and he does and he will. We have a prayer line that we do three times a week and mostly we have parents on the prayer line. And every week these parents have been coming for the last 10 years. Can you imagine that? 10 years they've been coming on this prayer line. Many of those parents have been bleeding and and. and not knowing what to do or where to go. As a matter of fact, I use the example of Andrea, whose daughter is Anna. And Andrea couldn't even, she went to her pastor and she said, I have a daughter that's a lesbian, you know, help me. What can I do? And he goes, you know what? We were never trained in the seminary on this. You know, I can't help you. And he said, maybe you should talk to the conference president. Well, the conference president actually has a son that's gay and he was actually in the film Seventh Gay Adventist. So she knew he wasn't a resource either because she wanted biblical understanding about how to pray for her daughter fortunately she found coming out ministries at GYC several years ago she's also one of our volunteers that helps us win our prayer lines but here she found a community of people that come week after week to help lift up her daughter and even though her daughter is still very entrenched in the gay culture she has other mothers and other fathers that are going through the same thing that are with her in a community where she's not ashamed She was so fearful to say anything about her daughter to her church. Isn't the church the place where we're supposed to feel safe? Isn't this the place where we're supposed to be praying for our loved ones that are struggling? If your child fell into a big hole, would you keep it a secret and try to get them out alone? Wouldn't you scream and yell for your neighbors to come and help you to throw a rope to get that child out of that well? And yet how sad that even in our own church that we're so afraid that you might find out the things that are going on in my family that you might judge me or ostracize me, that we don't even share the things that we're struggling with? Isn't the church supposed to be the place where we lift up those people? So I think that's the challenge of what we go through. I want to share with you this story. This is um, a friend of mine, and it's actually female. Her name is Marissa, but she goes by the name of Ray. And Marissa was living as Ray for many years. She was born in a drug-addicted, violent home. And so many times she would wake up and one of her parents would be at the hospital. The other one would be in jail. There'd be blood on the walls or on the floor. She went to school where she was molested by boys and girls. And many times the law was involved in that. So this girl was sexually experienced, even against her will, for many years. She had to cover up her femininity because it was a liability. And so she would dress in boys' clothes. Eventually, she felt that she was transgendered and gay. 16 years old, she's living in a relationship as a man. With her, with her lesbian lover, and she decided that she needed to get the sex change. Now, she would hear the voice of Ray in her head, or who that uh, voice told her that they were, and the voice of Ray would say, you know what, you need to have muscles and facial hair, not breasts and smooth skin. And so she determined that she was going to move to Seattle where she could have the surgery to become the man that she always wanted to be. So she moved to Seattle As she was living there, she found a therapist, and the therapist uh, gave her permission or gave her a prescription for the hormone therapy, but she had to live as a man for two and a half years before she would have the surgery to make sure that this was her her decision. So Eureka, she now is heading towards her goal of becoming a man. But she would hear the voice of Ray inside her head, and, and as she was going through the therapies, the voice of Ray would say, you know what, you're disgusting, no one will ever want you, you should just kill yourself. And the depression got so dark that she couldn't even get out of bed to go to her job. She couldn't get out of bed to go to her therapy appointments. And you'd think that she was actually heading in the direction that she wanted, and yet this depression was so debilitating she was really thinking about taking her life. She called the only person that she thought would care, and that was a Christian friend of hers that lived out in Colorado. And her friend said, come to me. And she goes, I don't have any money. And her friend paid for her to fly from Seattle to Denver. And while she was there, She was only supposed to be there three days, but she ended up staying three months because she knew if she went home earlier, she would take her life. Her friend didn't berate her or give her a hard time and say, You're an abomination and you're going to go to hell for living like you do. Instead, she prayed for her. And she told her friend, She goes, I I don't go by the name of Marissa anymore. I go by Ray. And her friend said, I'll call you whatever you want. I just want you to live. And while her friend was struggling to hang on to life, her friend was praying for her, and she saw her friend praying for her, but her friend was also demonstrating love. She wasn't just praying. She was helping to feed her. She was helping her to shower and to bathe, taking her on walks and praying for her, reading her the word of God. Until one day, Ray decided, you know what, I've never prayed before. And she looked up at heaven and she said, God, how do you see me? And the next image that she had in her mind was of this beautiful woman with long hair, just praising God. And she immediately dismissed that thought. She goes, that's not me. That's not me. And she dismissed that thought. But she did start to open the word of God. And as she started to read the word of God, it started to bathe over her this love that Jesus had for her. And when she got to Psalms 139, it talked about how God is in pursuit of you and that he'll go up high or down low in darkness or in light. It's all the same to him because his thoughts towards you are as countless as the sands of the seashore. And as she started to receive this love of Jesus Christ, she started to read further in that chapter where it says that I knit your delicate inward parts together in your mother's womb, that even before the earth was formed, that I knew you and that your sex was not a mistake. It was not by chance. I'm the one that planned it because I knew you and this is who I made you to be. And so she started to realize that God gave her the feminine identity as a blessing and not a curse. But it wasn't like a switch that she could flip on the wall and just say, okay, I'm a girl now. She did the only thing that she could do and she started to let her short hair grow out. That takes a while. And as she started to let her hair grow out, she continued to bathe herself in the word of God. And in this relationship that started to bloom and blossom, she started replacing the items of her closet. And I want you to see who Marissa is today. Isn't that amazing? And this isn't a a transformation that she could do. She didn't take hormones to get this look, and she didn't have to uh, mutilate her body to get this look. This is what happens when you receive the power of Jesus Christ from within. This isn't behavior modification. This is a divine transformation. And we as a church have the opportunity to help guide people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not your your responsibility, and, and it's not your place to make gay people straight. It's our place to be a safety net so that people can find the love of Jesus Christ so that the Holy Spirit can transform and change their life. And that's what some of the people in my church were able to do for me. If she would have mutilated her body, she never would have known what it was like to get married six years ago. If she would have removed her genitalia, she never would have known what it was like to to nurse her two children. So we have to let the world know that this is not only the truth of God, But it has to be better than what the world is handing out. The world is handing you out medications and and hormones that are going to decrease your life expectancy. They're also going to increase your rates of cancer threefold. It's also going to increase your rates of depression and suicidal uh, ideation. Did you know that 30% of all transgender people, even that have transitioned completely, commit suicide? Did you know that 41% of them will attempt suicide? I'm sorry, it's not working. We as Christians have the opportunity to give them something better. It's not enough to just give them the truth. We have to show them something better. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20 says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, for those that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And so what our church is doing is we're compromising. And if we compromise and give them the same thing that the world is giving them, then what are we giving them? We're not giving them anything different, are we? But we definitely have an issue we've been hateful and unloving for a long time and we have a reputation that we've earned and i believe that we've done more for gay rights by our ostracist ostrac- what's that word ostracization 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 is that a word well we'll pretend it what rejection that's a better one <laughs> and because of our treatment to the gay community i believe that's why the gay community is doing so well today and why Christians are losing their rights. I want to tell you a couple of stories that I think will help to explain some of what the church has done for me. Um, There you go. So this is a picture of me. I'm in the bottom row in the center, and um, the two guys on either side of me were two of my friends that had also walked out of the gay culture. Uh, One of them on the left is this Skinny Puerto Rican guy, and the guy on the right of me is this big, muscle-bound black guy, and we were all friends. We weren't sure if we were going to be out of the gay culture for sure. We, we were just kind of waiting to see. We were still struggling with addictions and drives. But you know what? God gave me those two friends to help me in this journey. And so, my friend Ruben, he met this Colombian family. They were immigrants from Colombia. Uh, that's the father on the right, and that's his 12-year-old daughter on the left. And so the mother is actually taking the picture. And so uh, Reuben went to a Bible study at their house. They were very poor. They lived in a really tenement community. And uh, they invited him for Bible study. So my friend Reuben called me on the phone. And he said, hey, Mike, there's this Bible study on Sunday night. You really should go. And I go, Bible study Sunday night? I don't think so. And he said, well, they feed us. And I said, OK, I'll go. So every week we were in their home. And you know something? They had very little, but they gave us everything that they had. I was driving a Mercedes, I had a house with a lake, uh, um, with a pool, a house on, or a condo on a lake. You know, I had all this stuff, and I gave them nothing, but they were giving me everything that they had. And as I would go to their house every Sunday evening, when it was my birthday, they made me a birthday cake. We would go out to the park, and we would do pyramids. They not only did Bible studies with me, but they also included me into their family, and that was a really powerful thing, and they didn't even know what they were doing. After several months of having three homosexuals in their living room, every Sunday night, the wife asked her husband, she goes, do you think they're gay? (laughs) I don't know how they missed it, but he said, I don't know, how would I know? And she said, do you think that we should be concerned about our daughter? And he said, the same blood of Jesus that saved us was shed for them too. And she said, I'm so glad you said that, because I've really learned to love them. And you know what, that relationship continued to grow. And when I moved to Tennessee back in 2004, they moved with me. And they lived with me until they found a house to live in. And during that time, this little girl was growing up. She was kind of like a a, a little sister slash niece to me. And um, as she was growing up, when she had challenges, she would come and ask me advice and information. I, I, I tried to relate to her from the experiences she was having as a young girl growing up. And as she grew up, she went to Southern University. She wanted to be a nurse. She met a boy that was studying to be a pastor, and he wanted her hand in marriage. And she said, if you want to marry me, you have to ask my father and Mike Carducci for permission. And folks, I bring that up because these are the relationships that we have the opportunity to engage in with people. You know, it's not a microwave evangelism where we just stick them in and turn it on too and then poof, you're, you're now baptized and everything's good. It's talking about creating relationships. And these people were willing to do that for me. I don't think it was a conscious decision on their part. I think it's what the Holy Spirit does. These people were immigrants from a country that I don't even speak their language. And I was this hotshot hairdresser thinking that I had it all wrapped up and yet the Lord brought us together in a lifelong, in an eternal relationship that I believe that will last throughout eternity because of their kindness to me. And they never focused on my homosexuality, never focused on those kind of things. Instead, they focused on my relationship with Christ and that was what we had in common and that grew and it swelled. And so that girl did marry that boy. Isn't she beautiful? And she has two children now, two children, and they call me uncle. So again, I want to tell you, these are the relationships that we have the opportunity to build. And there were some people in my church that were able to give that to me. Unfortunately, that we still have this prejudice in our church. We still feel that if we talk to someone that's gay, or if we interact with them or invite them to our home, that we're either going to get something on us, or that um, they might hurt us. And you know what? They're just people. They're just individuals. I want to share with you um, this final story about the biscuits. And as I was talking about Andrea, whose daughter is Anna, and she's actually in our film, Journey Interrupted, uh, the biscuit story to me is very touching. Anna was gay, and she had a girlfriend, and she wanted to bring her girlfriend home. And Andrea, she called her mom, and she said, I want to bring my girlfriend for the weekend. And her mom says, I don't know if I'm ready for all of that. And she said, let me think about it. So she called me on the phone and she said, Mike, I I don't want to see them together. You know, I want my daughter to come home, but I don't need to see this woman. I don't need to think about what they're doing. And I, you know, I don't want that in my home. I said, well, Andrea, you can make some ground rules. You can say that they have to sleep in separate bedrooms. You can ask them for no public displays of affection. I said, but didn't the blood of Jesus, didn't Jesus die for her too? I know, I knew you were going to say that. And I said, well, if you pray about it, Andrea, I'm sure the Lord will lead you. And so she did, and because she does love God, and she does love her daughter, she saw this as an opportunity. And so she, she conceded, and she said, okay, you can bring your girlfriend, but you have to sleep in separate bedrooms, and no affection in front of me. And they agreed. And so they came up to her farm in Kansas, and while they were on the farm, they were, you know, having a good weekend, and Andrea loves the Lord, and so she was loving this young lady, and grateful to see her daughter. And on Sunday morning, they woke up, and Anna comes into the kitchen, and she goes, mom, I want biscuits and gravy. And her mother said, okay, well, that's a lot of work. You're going to have to help me. And Anna said, fine. But her girlfriend stood back and she goes, oh, no, no, no. She goes, I don't know how to cook. My mother never cared enough to show me. She never took the time. So I've never even been in a kitchen. And Andrea being a natural teacher, not even knowing the power of what the Holy Spirit was doing, Andrea automatically said, well, then you come over here and I'll help you make the biscuits. And so they got together and they were mixing the flour and the ingredients together. They were sifting it. They rolled out the batter. They cut the batter into biscuits. They put it in the oven. That's all. And during this time, they're just having a good time. And she's teaching this young girl how to cook. And she's never made anything before. And now she's making biscuits. Breakfast was nice. They had a good time. The two girls went out to look on the farm. When they got to the barn, all of a sudden, Anna's girlfriend, she broke down and she started sobbing. And Anna went over to her and she goes, what did my mother say to you? And through her tears, through her sobbing, she said nothing. She said, I know what your mom thinks about us. And I can't believe that your mom was so nice to me. I can't believe that your mother, even though she doesn't like our relationship or the fact that we're together, she goes, I can't believe that she took the time to teach me how to cook. Do you see the power of the Holy Spirit? Isn't that amazing? That even when you don't even realize what you're doing, you're doing something. And, and that's the thing that I find the, the, the best about evangelism is that it's not something that I have to be determined about. It's not my job to make you, you know, to convert you or to change you. As a matter of fact, there was one young man, he, um, he, he didn't know that I wasn't gay. You know, I'm sure that my residue is still there. And so I, I was actually asked, asked to speak at a pro-gay um, Sabbath school class. Imagine that. And, um, and the, the teacher of the Sabbath school class, he said, will you be willing to give your testimony? I said, sure, but they were going to show a film that was actually pro-LGBT. So he had somebody that he was talking with that was gay, and, he, and I said, well, can I help you get ready? He said, yeah, I need to pick up this guy named Jeff. You know, so if you would go and pick up Jeff, that'd be great. So I go, I pick up Jeff. I know that Jeff is gay, but he doesn't know that I'm not. So I'm sure he's assuming that I am. And I thought, you know what? I could either just hold on to my own and just be nice, or I could actually befriend this guy. I could act like I'm his friend. And so the Holy Spirit inspired me. And so, you know what? I said, listen, I don't know anybody here. I go, you mind if we sit together? Sure. And we're going through the line and I go, you know, I don't want that whole piece. You want to split that with me? And we're talking like, where are you from? What are you doing? This kind of stuff. And so then when it was my turn to get up and to give my testimony, his, he was like looking at me like, what? Like he didn't even know I was a speaker. So I went up there, I gave my testimony. And when I came back to sit down, his mouth was hanging open. And I said, are we still friends? And a look on his face was like, I guess so, like that. And so I have this friendship now with Jeff whenever I'm in Chattanooga. I give him a call and I go, hey, you know, want to meet for lunch or for, for breakfast? And I meet him in an open place, in a public place, so that there's no misunderstanding. But one day, as I was waiting to go into the IHOP, I stopped, and I prayed, and I said, Lord, is today the day? Is today the day that Jeff is going to give his heart to you and come out of the gay culture? You know, and I prayed that prayer for the Holy Spirit. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that prayer, but I went into the IHOP with an agenda. And as I was talking over our pancakes, my friend stopped me, and he said, listen, Mike. He said, let me stop you for a second. He said, I'm not buying anything. So don't be selling anything. Those are really powerful words to me. And you know what? Jesus isn't something to be sold like a used car. And it's the Holy Spirit that does a conversion. My job is to love my friend. My job is to represent Jesus Christ. That even though I believe differently than he does, it's my privilege to be able to have a meal with my friend, to encourage him, to help him. And if he's interested, if he asks me, then I'm all open. But if he's not buying anything, my job isn't to sell Jesus Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And what is so wonderful is it makes it so easy when I just do what the Holy Spirit asks me. Many times when I pray and I ask the Holy Spirit to give me words to say to somebody, the Holy Spirit says, Mike, just keep your mouth shut. I'm like, okay. And I'm in a ministry that goes around the world. So imagine what he's telling you. And so there was one time I was in Austria and there was a gentleman that was transgender, six foot five and this guy had a really broad forehead and big massive hands and he did not look like a girl at all but he'd had top and bottom surgery and he was going through incredible pain and i thought well you know what i've experienced transgender uh dysphoria and and i thought yeah i got it all wrapped up i'll know how to how I act with this guy and so when i saw him come into church and i shook his hand I realized I didn't have any words to say at all. And the Holy Spirit convicted me that my job wasn't to say a word, but my job was to sit next to him in church because his church members didn't even know how to interact with him. And they would ostracize him and leave him alone. His wife left him. His kids wouldn't talk to him. His church didn't know how to deal with him. He was not only alone and very lonely, but he was also agonizing with uh, scarring from the surgeries that he'd had. And as I sat there, my job was just to listen to him. And as he spoke, I was there for him. And that was all that God asked me to do that day, even though I have an international ministry. And I believe that God does his job very well and that he doesn't need me to do that for him. Oh, and then here. Oh, so the story's not finished. So here, here this is Anna with her mom. And so um, it would be good enough, wouldn't it, that, that Andrea had this opportunity to talk to this young girl and that she broke down crying, right, because her mother was nice. That would be a really good witness. But the story isn't finished. Two years ago, the girlfriend, well, Anna and the girlfriend broke up a long time ago. But then all of a sudden, a couple years ago, Andrea got a phone call from the ex-girlfriend. And she said, hi, do you remember me? I'm Jennifer. I used to date your daughter. She goes, yeah, Jennifer, I remember you. And she said, listen, I'm calling you because I want to thank you for praying for me for all those years. Andrea never said that she prayed for her. And she goes, well, I didn't say that I prayed for you. And she goes, but I know you were. And she said, I'm no longer living in the gay culture, I've quit the drugs, I've quit the alcohol, I'm no longer gay, and I just called to thank you for the way you treated me when I was at your house that day. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that what we're missing in church, right? Christ's method alone brought lasting results. And so many people, they'll ask me, they'll say, okay, well, how should I interact with somebody that's LGBT? I go well. How would you interact with someone that was an alcoholic or drug addict, or um, an adulteress, or a porn addict, or somebody that's living with their partner and not married to them? It doesn't matter what the issue is. I think that the that the way that we approach them and reach them is still the same. Christ's method alone brought lasting results. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. And let me tell you something: people from the gay community—they know if you're sincere enough, they're probably the best at hospitality. Ron was a bartender, I was a waiter and a hairdresser. Trust me, we know how to relate to people and to give them the time of their life. And so people can tell if you're genuine or not. And we were able to see the ones who were basically tolerating us versus the ones that really loved us and were inclusive to us. And so mingle with people. Let them know that you care about them. And there are many ways to do that that doesn't confirm them or affirm their their lifestyles. He showed his sympathy for them, number two. Number three, he ministered to their needs. What is the need of the gay community? They need to know that they have a powerful Savior. They need to know that they have a Savior that can transform and change their lives and give them things that they never thought were even possible. Number four, he won their confidence. So it takes many steps to get even to the point where you win their confidence, and there were people that were willing to do that for me. And then when Jesus won their confidence, then he said, now take up your cross and follow me. We have to be winsome and patient in the process. And you know what? There are many people that were willing to do that for me. I'm going to bring this to a close. There was one more thing I wanted to share with you. Oh, yeah. A liberal church says that you're welcome here and you do not have to clean up your life. A legalist church says that you are not welcome here until you clean up your life. I like Jesus way better. In John chapter 8 and verse 11 says, Jesus says you are all welcome here and I will change your life from the inside out. Isn't that what the church needs to be? So I want to go to verse um, 1 of chapter 4 in Isaiah. It says, And in that day seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to, to- take away our reproach. It's interesting. It's interesting. You know, when I start to break that down a little bit from, you know, Bible prophecy and how you understand the word of God, what does a woman represent in the Bible? A church. Okay, so here's seven churches. Seven represents completion, so it sounds like a lot of them. And shall take hold of one man. Who's the groom in the Bible? Jesus. So these are seven churches that want Jesus as the groom. And they say, we, we need your name to take away our reproach. But listen, we're going to eat our own food and we're going to wear our own apparel. And so we know that a woman equals a church. Isn't that funny? All right. And so what does um, bread and garment represent? So uh, bread equals the word of God. Isn't that right? So these are seven churches that want to take hold of Jesus Christ. They want the name of Christian, but they're going to interpret the word of God the way that they want to. And then these seven churches, they they're going to um, they want the garment. What does a garment represent? The robe of righteousness. They go, oh, no, no, no. You can keep your wedding garment. We're going to wear our own garment. They've refused the righteousness of Christ, the justification and the sanctification. They're going to say, we can't change because we were born this way. And you're just going to have to love us and accept us as we are. And Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 1, I think, is talking about this very day that we're living in today. Seven churches, they're going to take hold of Jesus Christ and want the name of Christian, but they're going to interpret the word of God how they want And they're going to refuse the robe of righteousness. Have mercy if we become one of those churches. 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, I think is a message for all of us. When I started looking into the context of this verse, 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, it starts to talk about at the end of time, these things are going to be going on. And it's talking about how there, there's going to be a lot of strife in the world and that there's going to be a lot of uh, people that are attracted to the wrong sexual things. And it goes on and it says, there's a group of people that have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And we're warned from these people we're supposed to stay away. And I go, all right, well, let me break that down a moment. There's, there's a group of people that deny the power thereof. What, what's the power they're denying? Has it become evident yet in this presentation? When you deny the power of Jesus Christ to transform and to change your life, then you're that group of people. You have a form of godliness, which is love. We want to love these people. But when you deny them the power of Jesus Christ to transform their life, you've left them lost and loved. They're not redeemed at all. And who do you think is going to be held accountable for that on the day that Jesus comes to take us home? Isn't that the church? Right? So 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, I think is a... a, um, suitable application for the times in which we're living in, and it's not enough for us to love the church. We have to show them that the law is love, right? And so I hope that this has been uh, helpful for you today. It says, where does healing begin? And remember on that day when I was baptized, the one thing that I knew is that Jesus loved me for who I was. Pastor Ron talked about it in his sermon today, you know, but Jesus does love us where we are, but he doesn't leave us where we are. And there was a woman, she said, God loves you exactly as you are, but he's waiting for you to love him exactly as he is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I hope that what I've shared today is exactly what you wanted me to give. And Lord, I pray that it has brought up some questions, and I hope, Lord, it's answered some questions that some of the people may have had. And I ask, Lord, that you would transform us, that we would represent you so fully, Lord, that we would not be offended when we see people that don't agree with us, but rather, Lord, you would give us opportunities to confound their confusion, and that would give us opportunities to love them divinely so that we could show them who you are, Lord, and to get them to a position where they could invite you into their heart. Lord, it wasn't a church member that told me that I had to leave the gay culture or my boyfriend. It was you through the word of God and the Holy Spirit working on my heart. Thank you, Lord, for the many people that were that safety net for me where I could find comfort and love and acceptance and compassion as you were working on my heart. I pray, Father, that you will um, give us an opportunity to have an open discussion, to ask questions, Lord, that have been on our hearts and our minds, to find ways to reach out, to offer resources for people so that they can find transforming uh, power in their lives. And I thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Ron, are you going to talk about your book? Are you going to talk about your book? Too late, I'm going to do it anyway. All right, I gave you a chance. So if you want to go ahead and start, I'm going to tell them a little bit about some of the resources that we have. Ron wrote a book about a year ago, and it's called Navigating the Storms of Contemporary Sexuality, Identity, and Love. And we're gonna have some of those available for you after Sabbath. It's a great resource from a pilot's perspective, and it talks about how to deal with contemporary sexuality in our churches, in our schools, and even in our homes. I think it's a great resource to just talk about the love of God and also the redemption and the power of God to transform lives. Another resource that we also have is Line by Line by Wayne Blakely, who is also a founding member of Coming Out Ministries. This uh, resource also has 21 different testimonies of people that have come out of LGBT lives and understanding. So again, thank you for your time.